Howdy, and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights so we all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Carol Okolowitz, Cooper's attorney, we will be discussing guardians ad litem, minors' compromises, and the peculiarities required when one is dealing with people who have a harder time representing themselves. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for free strategic consultation on cases, and we accept referrals, trial, co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Welcome back to the show, Carol. Thanks, Wiles. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the guardian ad litem process and minors and conserved individuals. Have you had occasion where you've had a case where something like this needs to happen? Yes, I have. A few. What exactly is a guardian ad litem? My understanding is when a lawyer represents someone, a party, who the court deems incompetent to represent themselves. And there's a specific categories of these people. One is a minor, that means a person under 18. Another category is people who do not have the mental capacity to make legal decisions for themselves. That's not the proper terminology, but that's my general understanding And I believe the third category is individuals who are under a conservatorship. So if you represent a person in one of these categories, that person is not competent under the law to make legal decisions. And so they need a stand-in. And a guardian ad litem is in a lawsuit in which one of these three categories of persons is a party. The court takes extra care to make sure that these people are not uh, being taken advantage of. And a guardian ad litem is like an arm or a stand-in for the court. The role of a guardian ad litem is to make sure that the party best interests are being put forward. In other words, we don't expect a five-year-old to make legal decisions on their own behalf. If my five-year-old client tells me to settle the case right now for five cents, Um, you know, I have to listen to what the client wants, especially in that kind of a situation when we're talking about settlement. So the court requires with a minor that a guardian ad litem who is a competent adult who can make decisions in the minor's best interest be appointed. And Miles, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about the process of appointing a guardian ad litem, there's a whole process of choosing the proper person, and then the court appointing that person. The guardian ad litem process typically runs in concert with the filing of a complaint, or if the case is being settled without a complaint being filed, it usually runs concurrent to the petition for minor's compromise. And in that situation, it's a very simple judicial counsel form in terms of appointing a guardian ad litem. Where things get complicated is in certain counties, there are rules where it can't be someone who is also a party. And in certain counties, it can't be somebody within a certain level of consanguinity, if we remember that phrase from wills and trusts. For example, they don't want the parent necessarily to be the guardian ad litem in certain counties. Or if, say, the parent was 
there when the incident happened has a bystander claim, then they don't want the parent to be a guardian ad litem. That's a peculiarity that can come up because oftentimes when you have minors cases, the parent is nearby. Yeah, definitely choosing the guardian ad litem is an important choice. What you're saying is, you know, when the your client is a minor, if the minor's parent didn't witness the accident, the incident, he doesn't have a claim, then you're looking for a conflict of interest. If that person doesn't have a conflict of interest as far as you can see, then yeah, they're probably the best guardian ad litem because they're going to advocate on their own child's behalf and they're going to be a competent adult in the eyes of the court. So that person would be a good guardian for that situation. One other bit, a guardian ad litem, I've had this come up with cases, is not a guardian in the sense of the person who makes all the financial decisions and not a guardian like a conservator. A guardian ad litem is a guardian of the person's legal interests in this lawsuit only. It's a kind of a temporary position in that sense. And I think that's an important point to go over with client or clients when one is having the conversation, particularly when you're having the conversation with a situation where the parent cannot be the guardian ad litem. Because I've had that come up. Well, hold on here. I'm signing something. Somebody else is going to be my child's guardian. Is my child potentially going to be, could this person take my child away from me? And the way I typically describe it is it's not a direct translation in Latin, but the guardian ad litem is guardian for this lawsuit. Yeah. You asked about the process and typically the way it happens is you submit the form at the same time that you submit the complaint. And with rare exceptions, you get a rubber stamp, meaning the GAL, the guardian ad litem, is granted at the same time that the complaint is received and you're off to the races. Yeah, so I've got a situation that I'm dealing with now where I don't represent a minor, I represent an adult. And this is an adult who it was at one time a fully competent, you know, thriving, in fact, human being and sustained a brain injury in the incident. And I have a concern about whether or not he's competent to represent his best legal interests and believe that he probably will need a guardian ad litem appointed. And I did not recognize that at the beginning of the lawsuit. So from my experience in the past representing minors, yeah, I think most of the time the court just rubber stamps. That appointment doesn't ask questions, sees that the guardian ad litem is a parent or a close family friend or whatever, whoever you've chosen, and understands why that guardian ad litem needs to be appointed. But in a situation with an adult, I don't know how it's going to be. So I will face that when <laughs> when uh, I submit my papers. But that'll be an interesting challenge. I did a little bit of reading on the appointment of a guardian ad litem for a mentally incapacitated adult. And there are, of course, competing concerns about, on the one hand, representing the adult's best interests, and on the other hand, taking away the adult's ability to make decisions in his own lawsuit. So I'll see how the court deals with it in that case. It is a extra layer when you're dealing with that situation. And there's a wide area of gray on the brain injury side. A concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. Then there are you know moderate and major brain injuries where 
somebody's decision-making can be incapacitated to the point where this is an important part of the process to make sure that they aren't taken advantage of. And, and also, from a testimony perspective in court, if you have a client who has a significant limitation where they're going to say things that are wildly inaccurate, I think it's important for the jury to understand both from the doctors that they have a brain injury, but also from the eyes of the court that they're not suited to represent themselves. That's something I wanted to get to because that's how this came up in my case is I got my first set of discovery requests and was responding to them and thought, I don't know any of this information based on my client. I know it all based on other people and documents because he's not competent. And how can he sign a verification? Um, How can he testify under penalty of perjury? So this gets to another thing that I faced in this case, and that is I've talked to two potential guardians ad litem and both asked, what's my role? What is my job? Like on a day-to-day, what am I going to have to do? What's my job description? In a lot of situations, mostly what they are is a name on a piece of paper. They are this person appearing on behalf of this other person. But there are situations, for example, with a signing of a settlement agreement or a signing of a verification where they're going to have to attest to certain things and that's going to just be education. And that is an important point is once there is that guardian ad litem role, they are the ones who are signing off on things like the verification as opposed to the client, right? him or herself. Right, because exactly what you just said before, I don't want a situation and none of us want a situation where our incapacitated clients are being asked under oath, what did you do in this situation? And then, I don't know, 10 minutes later into the deposition or testimony, the same question and the client gives a totally different answer and it's not because they're lying. Right. And again, talking about the role of a guardian ad litem, just because you are a guardian ad litem doesn't mean that you're not going to be deposed. Because a lot of times the guardian ad litem is somebody who may have information that's relevant to the case. For example, a longtime family friend who knew the person before the incident and knows them now, or a parent or something like that. You know, they could be deposed, but they can only be deposed on their observations and recollections, not on their role. I think another thing that's important is minors, people with brain injuries, they can still be deposed. So one can certainly go and seek a protective order if one feels that it is completely impossible for one's client to give meaningful deposition testimony. But oftentimes with a minor, some of this is strategy as well, which is is it acceptable to put, say, an older child through a deposition process so that the defense counsel, they may not get all the factual information precisely because it is a child, but they will be able to report back to the carrier, you know, this is what the individual looked like, this is how they came across, a jury's going to find this person compelling. So people with guardians ad litem can still face the deposition process. Right, yeah. And you talked about a protective order You could work with opposing counsel to get agreements on things like time limitations, a break every hour, 
you know, parameters to protect your client. It may also be a good idea to video record the deposition in case opposing counsel gets pushy, especially if you have a very sympathetic, obviously not competent client, you may want to record that. And one of the things, and this is, I think, a testament to some of the humanity that sometimes gets shown in our cases, despite it being an adversarial process. Every time I've had a client who is a minor who has been deposed, the opposing counsel has always taken great pains to be as kind as possible. And I haven't had it happen a lot. And we generally have a pretty good bar up here in in the Bay Area. But most of the time, they've handled it in a very professional and very empathetic manner, as opposed to it being combative. As we talk about the guardian ad litem process, eventually we come to a settlement or a verdict. Regardless of how the case turns out, is there a process when somebody has this this guardian ad litem situation where the court itself steps in to review how all that money is going to be handled and where it's going to go and make sure the resolution is acceptable? Yes, that's the minor's compromise situation. And I will say that I've only gone through it with a minor. I don't know what happens when the person is incompetent adult, and I haven't gone through that. What I'd say is kind of from a broad perspective that the court's duties remain the same, which are making sure that I would say they are a check and balance to the process to make sure that the person who is actually receiving the money, that One, they're not being taken advantage of. That the lawyer who represented them isn't taking too big a fee or has too much costs. That the money's going to a a proper place. That it's not just going to line the parent's pocketbook. And that the resolution is appropriate. That an insurance company has not been able to get out for a, a bottom dollar. And so a court, theoretically, can say to all plaintiff's counsel, defense counsel, nope, that's not enough. I haven't seen that happen when people are represented by both sides. But this sometimes comes up when someone, a minor, chooses not to have a lawyer. The insurance company has to go through this process and have it approved by the court as well. It's a whole thing. The appointment of the guardian is less difficult. But when you get through to the minor's compromise, it's a little more information has to be provided. It's a little more scrutinized, I've found. And I think that it is wise as one goes into a minor's compromise hearing to have all your ducks in a row, meaning be able to answer all the questions, have the right people present, prepare the client, the minor. I've had courts ask the minor questions. If they're old enough, they'll usually do a little bit of a, you know, hey, I'm, you know, it's nice for you to be here. I hope you understand a little bit about this process. You understand that your case is being settled. And it's often, you know, they're 10 and up. I've had that kind of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I have too. In fact, I had a a peer on a court, on like a Zoom call with the family there in the courtroom, and the judge asked the 10-year-old directly, and whatever the question was, the kid answered, yes, Your Honor. It was very endearing. Yeah, that's very (laughs) cute. I think the other piece that is worth talking about is making sure one's fees are done appropriately and that one's costs are handled appropriately, because one of the things that a court looks at is that the fees are taken out second. So cost first, then fees. And so 
different lawyers have different contracts. And if you haven't represented folks who need a guardian ad litem before, that's certainly one of the first things that a court is going to do is, is see what those costs are. Were they truly appropriate? And make sure that they're subtracted first before the fees are taken out so that the client's net is larger. And then, then the other piece is courts will sometimes scrutinize fees and different courts in different departments were known for taking different positions on these issues. And sometimes there have been some lawyers who've been very unhappy where a court has said, well, I, I understand that your fee was supposed to be 25%, but we think that what happened in this case didn't require that much work and we're going to be taking a look at, at what your fees were. A lot of this got more standardized with the, the changes over the past, I think it was seven or eight years ago. But it used to be really kind of jungle ball in terms of what fees were. One other bit about that process at the end of a case, this is when, this can be when your choice of a guardian ad litem really becomes important because, I mean, I've had situations where the guardian just like disappeared on me. And, you know, the person may have been a good choice at the beginning because they were the parent or whatever, but you want somebody who's going to be available to sign documents, show up to court if need be, participate in the case to the extent they are willing to do that becomes important throughout the process, but really at the end when you're trying to wrap things. Keeping the folks informed about the process and informed about the fees and informed about the costs is also an important part of that because it is a time where a guardian ad litem can say no. I understand that I signed this contract on my child's behalf for 25%, but I want less now. And that can be, in terms of having challenges on the resolution side, that's the last challenge you want in terms of making sure that, that you've maintained a knowledge base to help people understand just, just how hard the work has been in terms of pulling things together in the case. Right, right. Whereas if you've kept them informed all throughout, explain to them the stretches you're having to make to get there, then it's not a surprise at the end to them. And it's about expectations with the guardian ad litem as with the clients, just to make sure they're aware of what's happening throughout. Always important. One of the final things that is worth touching on is where the money goes. And have you had any thoughts on best, best practices? Because there are a variety of places the money can go. I can tell you I know what the worst one is. The worst one is a blocked account. And I'll share this. The money has to go in a place where it can't be invaded by other folks. Meaning, even if the court says, yes, you are parent of the year, you are Atticus Finch. Even with that, the money needs to be put in a place where Atticus can't go and grab his daughter's money. So, and I'll tell you the reason I say a blocked account is the worst. I went through this process with a parent who I suggested, you know, I don't really think you want a blocked account. And it was the way that she wanted to have this set up. Blocked accounts are done through a bank. They have a very low interest rate. And you have to go to court anytime you want to withdraw money from it until the child turns 18. And then once the child turns 18, you have to go to court to get an order to get the money taken out. These are so rarely done that when I went with our client to the bank, it took us four hours at the bank because they did not know how to do this and they had to contact legal in New York. And then there were two more court appearances to be able to get the money out. So I will say of all the ways that one can handle it, 
that is my least favorite and the one that I say to the client, there are better ways to do this. I would like to hear what the other options are because that blocked account option is on the form for the petition for binders compromise. And I had this situation and it wasn't a four hour ordeal. It was like a six month ordeal because nobody wants to go through that and certainly not this particular guardian ad litem. So we just couldn't get it done. There are two tools that I've found work. And one is called CUTMA 529, California Uniform Transfer to Minors Act 529. Now, this is appropriate if the minor is likely to be doing some schooling past high school because a 529 plan is a, is, is a way of saving money, a tax-deferred way of saving money. You can then use for college other expenses that are educational-related expenses. The reason it has to be a CUTMA 529 is because generally a 529 plan is owned by the parent and the parent can give it to anyone who is a relative. So I might have opened a 529 plan for our daughter Dylan, but I control it and I can take that money and I could you know, transfer it to our son instead of our daughter. So a CUTMA 529 is different. It's actually owned by the minor. And so it's a, a nuance, but it is a nuance that's very important when one is setting this up. And so that is a a good way of getting a tax-deferred benefit for funds that a minor won't be able to access until the minor is over the age of 18. And courts generally say, yep, I'm good with that. The problem is it is in a 529 plan, which means if the minor decides not to do any form of education that a 529 can be used for down the road, there is a tax consequence to taking the money out of the 529 plan. But with a lot of parents, they determine that's an acceptable way of doing things. The other is, is a structure. And structures are great because you can get a structure that starts paying in a certain way as soon as they turn 18. The challenge is that it means they have to wait until they turn 18 to be able to access any of the funds in a significant way. So, and these all kind of, they don't take into account the catastrophic injury where the minor is going to need funds day to day to take care of the minor that go beyond what the parent can afford. Because generally, you know, the reason all this money is getting parked till they're 18 is because it's a parent's obligation to take care of the child. But if there are, are catastrophic medical costs that aren't going to be covered by some sort of governmental benefit, 24-hour attendant carers is an example of something that is typically not covered, then one's going to need to be more creative in terms of the funding and, and system that gets set up. For a structured settlement, that's got to go in the settlement agreement, right? That's got to be all agreed to by all the parties at the time of settlement, right? Yes, and you can come up with a broad settlement terms and an acknowledgement that this is a minor and that it is likely that this will be paid not in a lump sum, but paid through some form of annuity and then have that secondary full settlement agreement built out when you work with your structure broker. And the other nice thing is that with interest rates going back up, structures are a much better product than they used to be. And at, at a, the risk of conveying information that, that most of us in this field usually know, a, a structure is in essence an annuity, but it is a conceit. It's a situation where a personal injury settlement is not taxable, but any money generated from that settlement is in this case, instead of settling for $100,000, 
the settlement is I'm going to settle for $1,000 a month for the next X months, and I'm okay with that not actually being paid by defendant, but being paid by AIG instead. And then that $1,000 a month, because that's the term of the settlement, is still considered to be tax-free. A lot of benefit to it. The downside of the structure is that once you structure it, you can't undo the structure. And while you may see factoring companies have advertisements, J.G. Wentworth, Late Night TV is, is a common one, you really lose a lot of money if you try and sell that $1,000 a month. If you suddenly need that 100 instead of $1,000 a month for X months, and you have to, to try and get a lump sum to, to make some sort of a payment, you will have a huge loss if you sell it to a factoring company. Good to know. Helping folks who need additional help takes a little bit of an extra lift. It's certainly worth doing it. And one has to recognize that the court is going to be taking a very close look. So one better make sure that one has done it right. Yes. Important. Thanks again, Carol, for being here. Thank you. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at coopers.law with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions on how you've handled the guardian ad litem issue and minors' compromises. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting.